what a pleasure to be here and um, chatting with you with you all. Uh, you know, as Anthony has just said, I'm going to speak to you today about one of the world's biggest problems. How are we going to feed the future? And um, in this talk, I'll try to touch on a wide range of issues, uh, include a little bit of animal agriculture, which is the stuff that you folks are probably most uh, most aware of and most interested in. But my goal is really to provide you an introduction and a high level survey to the top. Um, and probably an important place or an appropriate place to start uh, is uh, with the challenge of population growth. And probably, as we all know, the world's population currently sits at around 8 billion people, and this is set to grow for at least another couple of decades. And um, when you put all this together, it means that uh, we are going to need more food, uh, a lot more food, as it turns out. According to The Economist magazine uh, that ran an article on this a few years ago, in the next 40 years, humans are going to need to produce more food than they did in the previous 10,000 put together. 10,000 years, I beg your pardon, put together. Um, and of course, we have to contend with, uh, with climate change while we deal with that uh, gargantuan task of producing all this food, which threatens to make food harder and more expensive to produce, threatens to make some of our most fertile regions significantly less fertile. But... Um, when I present the world's food security challenge in this way, it really focuses on production. And uh, it makes us seem that if we could just address climate change and food production and boost production, we'll have a well-fed future. And of course, the problem is far, far more complicated than, than that simple narrative allows us to have. Um, first, we have to wrestle with the fact that uh, food distribution today is actually very inequitable. Today, there is probably enough food for the world's population in some measures, but yet it's not very well distributed. And I can actually think of no better way to explore the issue of distribution with you than to simply show you two photographs from what I think has to be my favorite photo essay of all time. It's called The Hungry Planet. It's by two journalists, Peter Menzel and Faith Deluzio. It was published about 15 years ago, so it's getting a little dated, but uh, these two journalists had the genius idea of traveling around the world and taking formal family portraits with families from different cultures. And uh, the great thing is they posed each family with a week's worth of groceries. And in this way, they introduce us to the Revis family, pictured here from North Carolina. Uh, 15 years ago, the Revis family spent apparently about $85 per person per week on food. I think it's worth pausing to revel in the color of the American diet, uh, the packaging that goes into our food system, and I guess the extraordinary lack of fresh fruits and vegetables. Of course, it invites the obvious comparison with the Natomo family from Mali, $1.76 per person per week is what they spent on food, largely vegetarian diet, largely free of packaging. And you cannot look at these two photographs and help but conclude that we live in a deeply, structurally really, inequitable world. And, and unfortunately, the data really backs this up. Uh, here we see the cover of last fall's annual United Nations State of Food Security report provide sobering insights that provide uh, that for the last five years, we've in a row, both hunger and obesity have been rising at a global level. So that's the challenge, distribution. We also have to ask the question, are we producing the right kinds of food for everyone to enjoy a healthy diet? And a couple of seconds ago, I said, we're producing enough food. And technically that is correct. We are producing enough food for everybody. We are currently producing about 2,800 calories per person per day on the planet, which is enough. 
Um, but it's not necessarily the right kinds of food for us all to be healthy. And so um, what I'm going to show you is on the left-hand side of the screen will appear what we should be eating according to the well-known uh, Harvard University's nutritional guideline called the Harvard Healthy Eating Plate Diet. And on the right-hand side of the screen, I've used United Nations data to explore what we actually are producing at a global level. And we begin with the fruits and vegetables that we all should be eating more of. About half of our diet should be made up of fruits and vegetables. Yet when you look at the actual production data, uh, you realize that we're only producing a small proportion of the world's food are fruits and vegetables. Indeed, the team that I worked with to publish this data calculated that we would need uh, to almost quadruple our global production of fruits and vegetables if we wanted to just produce enough for everyone to be able to follow dietary guidelines. And that's not, that's not assuming that people could then afford those foods. By contrast, we should have about 20% of our diets be cereals and starches, whereas the vast majority of our food system are cereals and starches. And here it's really important to note that the cereals and starches on the right-hand side of this slide are for human consumption that does not include livestock feed. Oils and fats should make up a very small proportion of our diet, yet may represent a major part of the global food system. Meats and alternatives and dairy products are a little bit difficult to interrogate given there is a lack of consensus amongst nutritionists about how much or even if we should be eating these products. So I'll, I'll come back to this point in a, uh, the meat issue in a, in a few minutes um, and remove to the kicker of or the punchline of this slide, which is the sugars that we all should be limiting, yet nevertheless make up a huge proportion of the global food system. And uh, I, think, I think it stands pretty obvious that when you see the data presented in this way, it's difficult not to conclude that there's some sort of fundamental mismatch between what we produce and what we should be eating, and that perhaps this mismatch finds something to do with its roots in our cases of skyrocketing obesity and diabetes. Then, of course, you know, we also have to talk about things like food waste. Uh, most reports suggest that somewhere between a third and a half of the world's food needs that we produce is never eaten by, by humans. And to put that into context, here's some data published a few years ago by the city of Vancouver that suggests that Metro Vancouver wastes 80,000 potatoes, 30,000 eggs, and 70,000 cups of milk each day. And then, of course, there's agriculture's environmental footprint. Unfortunately, the global agri-food systems are responsible for somewhere between a quarter and a third of global greenhouse gas emissions. And the data is also quite clear. Agriculture is the world's largest driver in habitat loss and biodiversity loss. Agriculture uses more fresh water than any other human activity. And agriculture is the world's biggest source of water pollution. And what you're looking at here is one of the algae blooms from Lake Erie, one of Canada and the U.S.'s Great Lakes. All of which is to say that uh, developing the strategies to safely, nutritiously, equitably, and sustainably feed the world's growing population has to be ranked as one of the biggest challenges we face over the upcoming century. Okay, with that being said, I'd like to pivot to use that, uh, that horribly overused 2020 word and, uh, and discuss how technology if we deploy it properly, can solve, or at least partly solve, some of these problems. Um, and in order to set this part of my talk up, let me share with you an anecdote that I sometimes use to illustrate the scale of technological changes currently underway in food and farming systems. And um, Anthony mentioned that when I was a kid, I, I had a grandfather with a farm in the Niagara Peninsula, 
uh, in southwestern Ontario. That's a picture of me on that farm. I'm sitting on my grandfather's lap. I'm guessing this picture was taken in the mid-1970s. And as a teenager, I used to stand on the back of this tractor where my brother and my cousins are currently standing in this picture. And uh, one of my jobs was to throw handfuls of fertilizer pellets off the back of the tractor as grandpa would drive slowly through the melons and the sweet corn and the strawberry fields. Now, unfortunately, with the benefit of both hindsight and a PhD in agriculture, I'm gonna estimate that 50% of that fertilizer did not end up in the right place or at the right time for the plants to utilize. And either worked its way into the atmosphere as a greenhouse gas or into the water table as pollution. But that was then, back in the dark ages of the 1980s and the 1990s. And this is now the fully autonomous smart tractor, capable of knowing where it is in the field and applying the right amount of fertilizer at the right place, at the right time, for each individual plant to utilize on a meter-by-meter -meter basis with maximum efficiency. The advent of these high-tech robotic tools is sometimes called the Digital Agricultural Revolution or Ag 4.0, lots of different monikers. And it probably began hmm, 10 years ago or so. We started to see these products um, uh, or these tools crop up. And, uh, you know, to be honest, the dairy industry was at the vanguard of this transition with the robotic milkers that have become very common in, in some parts of the world, in, including in Ontario, where about half of our dairy farms now use robotic milkers. And the interesting thing about the dairy milkers or the robotic milkers is they more or less autonomously milk the cows, so reduced labor requirements. And while they're being milked, the robots capture the biometric data that helps the farmer manage the herd health, estimate, enhance animal nutrition, maintain productivity, uh, identify mastitis before the cow even knows she's sick, let alone the farmer thinks to call in one of you folks to, to diagnose it. Um, and that probably means that farmers with robotic milkers use less antibiotics, for instance, to treat mastitis. Now, similar changes as this are happening up and down the food chain, uh, including smart packaging materials that biodegrade, but also change color when food goes bad. And that's a way of enhancing food safety, reducing food waste, as well as reducing the pollution that comes off of food in the form of plastics, all the way through to what sometimes are called blockchain-enabled e-commerce platforms. These would be computerized systems that allow great tran greater transparency from farm to fork. So consumers can see, sort of see uh, what the farmer was doing with their food and the farmer can really understand what the consumer's demanding. As a result, many uh, folks in this field believe that the next big digital frontier will be the application of digital tools to food and farming systems and that we will be able to help improve food security through technology. And the literature really gets quite breathless with excitement that not only are there huge business opportunities but we can produce more food on less land, we can reduce waste, and we can feed the world's growing population while shrinking the environmental footprint of our food system all at the same time. But if all this maybe sounds a little too good to be true, then I think you have right to be critical. So I'm gonna pause for a minute and I'm gonna to to reflect a little more critically and drill into two technologies, two specific kinds of technologies, which are capturing a lot of people's imagination right now, but I think need a little bit more explanation. And I'd like to start with the broad area of vertical farming or indoor horticulture. Now, investment money and media attention has poured into vertical farming really recently. And I think a large part of this is very, very significant and very legitimate. My very strong prediction is that over the next five years, we will see a rapid deployment of technologies that will bring fruit and vegetable production both indoors 
and closer to home, even in places like Canada, where we've got a growing season that usually doesn't allow us to produce fruits and vegetables in the winter. For instance, we know that there's well-established tomato, cucumber, and pepper operations using traditional greenhouses, high degree of automation that are giving us year-round production and some key things. That's only going to grow and become more sophisticated in the next little while. Um, this approach to food production is picking up space. Uh, as a result, proponents of vertical farming really believe that we are moving to a point where we can produce, and the phrase that I keep hearing is, any crop, anywhere, anytime. But let's pause again. Uh, wh while I do think this technology has tremendous potential, I don't think we're there yet. Um, and uh, for instance, first of all, vertical farming today mostly produces expensive salads, which really isn't, in my opinion, a very exciting part of a global food security strategy. So let's, let's be realistic here about what vertical farming is and what it does. In addition, there's also some very important pieces of research that really need to be undertaken before we can get this level of ambition. Uh, first, we need more varieties of crops that are bred for year-round production. Um, like I just said, mostly it's producing salads. Well, we need strawberries, we need blueberries. I actually just started working with a vertical farming company that's producing high-end high-protein livestock feed on vertical farms um, in the form of microgreens then are feeding them to cows as a as a addition to a ration. So that's a very interesting livestock-related animal agriculture application of vertical farming. Uh, second, we need more work to be done on mechanical harvesting uh, to bring the costs down because it's no good to just be producing expensive salads if we want this to be a viable food security strategy. Third, uh, and this is a really interesting one from a science perspective, we need more research to be done on how uh, fruits and vegetables perform differently under wavelengths of light. Now, I realize that you, you folks are, are veterinarians and interested in animals, but I couldn't help but show you three heads of lettuce because I think this is just illustrates where this technology is going and I find it fascinating. So um, uh, here's some, uh, this work was done by a colleague of mine, Mike Dixon at the University of Guelph. Um, the lettuce on the right, uh, which is under the blue light, uh, was, produces a lot of what are called antioxidants that gives the leaves the purple color. The lettuce in the middle was produced under red light, and that lettuce is actually twice as big as the lettuce on the right. And the lettuce on the left is the control one produced under white light. And what Mike has discovered is that you can actually completely change the shape, the texture, the size, and the taste of vegetables and fruit just simply by changing the wavelength of light that the plant grows under. Mike, for instance, has shown that if you start lettuce off with, um, with uh, red light, they grow really big, and then you change them to blue light for the last couple of days, you get the antioxidants that give them the purple leaves and you can get a premium in the marketplace. So my message to you is that this space, this vertical farming space is going to be huge, uh, but we're not quite there yet. Uh, not all the research has been done and we really need to be thinking a bit more ambitiously about using technologies for food security rather than just producing expensive, high-quality salads. I'd like to now shift to technology number two, which is also capturing people's imagination. And that's, of course, the, uh, the protein revolution, which threatens to be incredibly disruptive. Uh, and here I'm talking, of course, about the advent of plant-based protein, but also this thing called cellular agriculture that involves simple synthesizing what are ostensibly animal proteins in the laboratory. Now, these products hit the news in 2020 with uh, the initial public offerings of, of Beyond and Impossibles and whatnot. We now have companies like Tyson and Canada's own Maple Leaf, traditional livestock protein companies investing heavily in this space. 
Um, and, uh, you know, to quote a, a Canadian, uh, very senior Canadian meat guy, uh, Michael McCain, he says, the future is higher quality, but less quantities of meat, uh, but more protein. So Maple Leaf is pivoting away from being a meat company to being a protein company. Huge implications for all sorts of people. There's lots of controversies. Uh, a lot of consumers, of course, have criticized these products as being hyper-processed and high in salt. Other people are deeply concerned that uh, a large amount of what's on this screen is bioengineering. And uh, for instance, the ingredient that gives this new generation of meatless burgers their meaty texture is a molecule called heme that a, all mammals have in their blood. Uh, it bonds to iron. It, it's what makes meat pink and juicy, and it caramelizes when it grills but it comes from a bioengineering experiment and consumers are raising concerns about this. Is this a natural food? Uh, and we get caught up in a very complicated discussion around that. Um, with that said, I wanted to put a company on your radar, which I think proves, will prove to be incredibly disruptive uh, and have major implications for the world's food systems and, uh, and animal agriculture. And it's a company called Perfect Day. I learned about it last summer. And um, they very explicitly position themselves as an agent for positive change. Uh, down at the bottom right-hand side of this slide, they say that they uh, make dairy perfect, which um, I was giving the slide or giving a version of this talk to the dairy farmers of Ontario recently. And um, they find this rather problematic because Perfect Day does not use cows. It was started about five years ago by two chemical engineers in Silicon Valley that bioengineered a form of yeast that uh, digests starches and produces a molecule that is identical to dairy protein. And uh, it's a vegan dairy protein. And ice cream made with, uh, with this protein is now available across the USA. I would be driving down to Buffalo today to try some if the border was open. And I have, but I have it on good authority that this makes really good ice cream and is completely chemically, culinarily indistinguishable from regular ice cream. So, but when we think about this, uh, technological revolution coming at us, um, we have to ask the question, what on earth is going to happen to animal agriculture? Maybe we can help improve the environmental performance of our food system, but there's about a billion people on the planet today that depend on animal agriculture for their livelihoods. If they lose their livelihoods, what impact is that going to have on food security? Are we facing a moment analogous to what must have happened a hundred years ago as tractors replaced draft animals on farms? Are cattle ranchers and dairy operators going to go the same way as blacksmiths did 100 years ago and simply be replaced by technology? I'm not going to try to answer this question right now. I'm happy to talk about it in the Q&A, but I'd like to shift a little bit into the final moments of this talk and talk a little bit about what sort of policy changes I think have to happen in order to maximize the benefits of these technologies while mitigating the negative consequences. And my first point is that if one of the benefits of this digital agricultural revolution is to reduce the agriculture's impact on the environment, then governments really need to be creating what are called eco-fiscal incentives or payment for ecosystem services. In other words, financial awards to farmers who protect the environment. This would help, uh, such as carbon taxes, such as illustrated on this slide. So techno policies like carbon taxes could help farmers or other agents adopt low carbon or low environmental impact technologies and really create incentives to help reward agents, processors, producers, et cetera, who protect the environment. Second, one of the big impacts of this is going to be a real radical change in how food production and processing is done. And this means we need a new approach to training. Given that the disruption I think is coming, 
if we want to manage this disruption of this technology, we need to be training the youth of the future leader in a better way. And this really means three things. In my opinion, I think we need to be continuing to focus on and promoting the traditional agricultural disciplines, animal husbandry, animal veterinary science, soil science, crop science. But we also need to be realizing that the future leader is going to be a data scientist. So we need better integration between the engineering and computer science departments and the agricultural colleges. That means uh, our ag students and our veterinary students need to be better data managers. At the same time, our computer scientists and engineers need to have an understanding of ag and vet science. That's not going to be enough, though. Uh, workplace study after workplace study tells us that students also need foundational skills of critical thinking, social perceptiveness, group work. The technologies are changing so fast that students can't just be technologically expert. They also need to be good team players and have those foundational or soft skills. Bringing all those three things together, though, the traditional ag disciplines and veterinary disciplines, the STEM disciplines, science, technology, engineering, math, and the, um, and the, uh, the foundational skills, though, will be a real challenge for our colleges and our universities. And the third and final piece of policy advice that I would like to leave with you is to go back to that slide from the hungry planet that I had at the beginning of my talk. And I'd like to remind us all that we live in this deeply inequitable world. Uh, problems of food insecurity, which is defined as a lack of ability to access healthy food, will not be solved with um, anything I've talked about in the last few slides. Uh, food insecurity is a social and an economic problem linked with uh, poverty and colonialism and racism. We know that food insecurity uh, disproportionately affects uh, black indigenous people of color. Um, it has been, those people have been exacerbated or food insecurity amongst those groups has been exacerbated by the pandemic. So if we want to address this particular pernicious issue, food insecurity, which is a subset of food security, uh, we need, I think, progressive social policies linked with things like basic incomes and programs to address racism and forms of marginalization. Food insecurity, in other words, is a social problem and only will be solved with social problem, a programming. So with that said, uh, let me wrap up. Um, in my opinion, one of the next big frontiers of technological innovation it's a, is the digital agriculture revolution. It will shape our health. It will shape our communities, our relationship with the planet. I think if it's properly done, it will generate a tremendous amount of wealth. Uh, but we have to work hard in order for it to not have major disruptions, negative disruptions, um, uh, such as the billion people on the planet who currently depend on ag agriculture. And finally, although I'm under no, uh, I'd like to stress that I'm under no illusions. Uh, these technologies that we're facing that we hope will address global food security are not a panacea. No, no technology ever is. But perhaps with collaborative policymaking, uh, we can address some of these big social issues associated with food security. So that's it for me. Thank you very, very much.